Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. Last night, last night, I'm in my meditation group. Actually, it's kind of a meditation circle. That's what's called a meditation circle. Although it's not even a circle, it's an oval. Nevertheless, I'm in my meditation group, and uh, at uh, it, there's a, a wonderful leader. <clears throat> there's it's five for five days a week, every every day at this place, uh, a local Jewish community center. They have um, different leaders of different sort of. Um, kinds of meditation, Jewish mysticism, Zen, um, mindfulness med- meditation, different kinds of meditation. But it's all the same stuff anyhow. It's all the same wisdom, same meditation. Um, at the end, and this guy who runs this group on Thursdays where I go, is a really terrific guy, <clears throat> very good-hearted, um, 
been through a lot of things in his life but still has a kind of or has achieved a sort of childlike benevolence in the midst of his adult responsibilities, which are many, as I happen to know. At the end, he, um, before we completely come out of the meditation state we're in, he says uh, he's going to do something called, and this is every week, it's something called a blessing practice, which is, <clears throat> it runs perilously close to uh, too much religion for me. But, you know, I'm trying to get into the spirit of all this stuff, and I don't want to complain. Actually, I, maybe I do want to complain, but I'll try not to. Uh, more about that later. So anyhow, at the end, there's something called a blessing practice that the guy does. And um, he says, first of all, um, he wants to that we should all do this. We should wish safety. I forget exactly how to safety, uh, health, safety, and happiness for ourselves. Charity begins absolutely at home. Then for our loved ones or people who are close to us, and repeat the thing over and over again, May you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, that kind of thing. And then for everybody in the um, circle there, that, you know, last night at that circle. And then for everybody in the world, (laughs) everybody in the world who may need your blessing, may you be uh, safe, happy, and healthy. And I have to say that that's just too much for me. Not that I don't want everybody in the world, with maybe a couple of exceptions here and there out of the seven and a half billion people, to be happy and healthy and safe. Sure, why not? But it just seems like a bit much to ask. You know, I mean, there's just so much happiness, safety, and health to go around. And there is just so much um, wishing that, a, that each person has. Is this, is this uh, ringing a bell of anybody here? <laughs> uh, and by the way, let me know if you respond to anything I'm saying because uh, this goes on like every uh, four to six weeks here <clears throat> that people are so busy and there's so many radio shows and there's so much information and junk and details coming over into your eyeballs and your ears and you're so busy all the time. Even if you don't do anything, you're still busy all the time now. That uh, you don't have really, you don't have time to concentrate on one particular thing for too long. Certainly not to respond to anything. I mean, I, I get emails from people. I don't know how many you get. I get a couple of dozen emails every day. That are, some are just junk emails. Uh, you know, uh, some are uh, arranging appointments. Others are this, that, personal emails. Um, I'm on all kinds of lists. You know, find out what happened politically, which I keep crossing off all the time. Or What's it? Unsubscribing. Because I get less and less interested in the world all the time. Speaking of bringing, you know, health, happiness, and safety to everybody, sure, why not? But I <laughs> Anyhow, so I, I'm doing all this stuff. And, and <clears throat> so oh, where was I? So, so respond. If you hear anything here that I tell you to, uh, that's interesting or funny or irritating to you, I would like to hear about it. And the way to do that is go, go, go to a place called Fader Files on my website, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S. Dot com, and just send me an email because I, I I really uh, I mean after thirty five going on forty years whatever it is on the radio, uh, one of the major things and not the major thing was that not just that I'm speaking but that people are hearing what I'm saying. So and I need to know that. So where was I? So I'm supposed to wish 
all the people in the world who need health, happiness, and safety, which is just about everybody, but in an intense way, it could be a couple of billion people. And I feel sort of, um, it's a kind of dilution. I've got enough wishing and enough hoping and enough energy in me in my old age to, uh, to, to wish it for myself, for my loved ones, people close to me, for the people in that room. Um, I, might, uh, I might wish it for everybody uh, where the place is located, which is at 76th Street and Amsterdam Avenue in Manhattan. So uh, everybody on Amsterdam and 76th, I hope they're happy, healthy, and, and uh, safe. But the whole world? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but that's certainly not the point. I'm sure I don't get the point, as I don't get the point about almost everything. <clears throat> Anyhow, I wanted to talk about my recent trip to Maine. And again, I hope I could talk about it without uh, recourse to my inevitable complaining. But who knows? I mean, in fact, what I'm thinking is it would be good just once before I die to get through an entire show or since my show is usually just a continuation of my life to get through an entire hour of that life, including the show, without thinking or speaking badly about someone or something. And I know, I know people, my wife, for instance, and my son, and a couple of my friends, and some people that I've worked with off and on, they could go for days, weeks, um, months, maybe, without complaining. I mean, first of all, it's not in their natures to do it, as it obviously is in my nature. And... Since I know them pretty well, I know that in addition to their benevolent dispositions that they were born with, <clears throat> that it's also a, this is a choice they've made. People make a choice, right? They, they've seen the results in their life of complaining, and they have rightly decided that the benefits uh, of complaining are very meager, um, both for themselves and for the world at large, speaking of blessing the world at large, right? I mean, instead of complaining what these people do that I'm talking about, these people I know, they make comparisons. They say they would prefer one thing over another, you know. Uh, they don't burst out with some vituperation and, you know, a string of curses and disgust out loud. And, you know. and uh, if they have nothing uh, particularly positive or approving to say, they keep their own counsel, right? They keep their own counsel. Yeah, they disapprove. They're even disgusted by people like um, Trump or maybe even, speaking of larger groups, the, the universal degradation of culture and politics, the way everything is going to hell, de-evolution everywhere in the most noisy way. They disapprove of it, <clears throat> but they don't put their emotional emphasis on complaining about it all the way I do on things. I mean, <clears throat> they'll comment. They, they might sigh. They might shake their heads. They might frown even come out with an angry word or two here and there, but that's about it. I mean, they have obviously figured out what I have not yet grasped, uh, at least grasped enough to quit doing it, that walking around constantly balancing a large vat of acid on your head is not conducive to anyone's uh, emotional, physical, or social well-being, not anyone at all, not even yourself. I think there must be something about um, about complaining that fills a primitive and kind of uh, overpowering need in me. I mean, that, this is my conclusion. Something that I feel that I'm compelled to do, that I'm compelled to complain. I mean, you know, I, I know a lot of people who complain, and, um, and I do this myself. I can hear people say, I don't want to complain, but. Yeah, you do want to complain. The, the, the beginning of, uh, of uh, happiness, speaking of happiness, 
is knowledge. Knowledge, right? <clears throat> if you want to complain, you want to complain. Be a good idea to find out why. But I feel like I need to complain, like it's a like it's um, a need. It's necessary for my ego. I mean, my actual existence. I feel like would be in fatal danger if I didn't constantly complain. But why? Why is that? Maybe, maybe I believe even if there are like a mountain of evidence to the contrary, right? That people will take me more seriously if I complain. This is something that people who complain, I think, feel the same about. If if you complain about something that people um, will take you seriously, that then if you don't complain, you'll be actually invisible. If I didn't tell everybody exactly how bad I felt all the time, that I would be invisible, that nobody would see me. They wouldn't even know I existed. And uh, what I'd like to know for myself is why haven't I figured out that complaining doesn't keep people interested or concerned? On the contrary, what it does is it drives them away. This I've seen in my own life. I mean, I think Donald Trump and I have similar type problems. I do. I mean, I share. do you share any of Donald Trump's problems? Be honest. Do you? Even in a small way? I mean, narcissism is not something just confined to a handful of people. I mean, narcissism is something to, the, to a certain degree that affects uh, hundreds of millions of people, right? But look at Trump. <clears throat> Anyhow, I think I have a similar problem or type problem. Um, and uh, what, he, what Trump wants is desperately he wants attention, obviously. But the way in which he sets out to get it alienates almost everybody that comes near him. But clearly the, inten- the attention, even if it's bad attention, is more important than uh, anything else to him. And this is uh, clearly self-destructive behavior at its most powerful because ultimately he's like a gambler who's gambling to lose. Um, if he wins something, and he might win things here and there, um, extraordinarily enough, he might actually do some things in foreign policy that nobody else has been ever, ever been able to do. It might happen. But he will inevitably, and he will be compelled to do this, to follow up any success he has with a more staggering failure. This is, what, this is what it is. He's gambling to lose, this guy. He always gambles to lose. He does not gamble to win. It may look that way, but it's not. Um, I think most people, they figure out, even by the time they're in their teens probably, that carping and complaining rarely does any good. I mean, it almost never fixes any real-life emotional or circumstantial problem, right? And, and like I said, it alienates almost everybody who hears it. Now, you know, I... Who out there is listening to me <clears throat> who has had a history of complaining? You know, like they, said, they describe people with a history of violence. <laughs> Do you have a history of complaining? You know, I mean, everybody knows people who complain, right? Uh, uh, so, you know, you can maybe identify with this. And if you're not one of the people who does complain, maybe, uh, maybe you and maybe absolutely we all know somebody or more than one somebody who is close to us that complains. And it's alienating, right? Um, and for me, I think this complaining is really just a public kind of out loud expression of my profound negativity. I mean, deep, you can't even, I mean, they, they don't have, uh, they don't have the, the scientific measurements to, to figure out how deep my negativity goes. Um, and that this negativity of mine is, it's a state that is so total and so long standing in me. That if I have now, if I have a pleasant or a positive thought now, if I ever do, I feel like I was in serious, imminent danger of some kind. Actually, positive thoughts and um, 
even even in my own secret mind, a positive thought or a pleasant thought, um, uh, it makes me feel immediately as if I'm in danger. If suddenly, if my life is being threatened, I mean that's how bad my negativity is, or how addicted I am to it. Um, part of this is a superstition, something uh, like a very young child or someone from a quote unquote primitive society might believe. If you disparage something, and maybe this seems familiar, if you disparage something that might be positive or good, then the gods, you know, whoever they are, won't become envious and take it away from you. I understand that this used to be this way um, uh, classically in China, that a lot of people, uh, it was common practice that if something good was happening or if something good was about to happen, you would disparage it. Somebody would say... Um, Oh, that's a very lovely child you have, and this person would say, "No, no, this is a this is a this is a surpassingly ugly baby." <laughs> that way, the gods who are petty and jealous and always looking to ruin you, they won't, you know, look up from whatever thing they're doing, whatever whatever bizarre godlike thing they're involved in, and suddenly notice that you have a beautiful child and say, "Oh, I want that beautiful child." Zap! It's gone. Or suddenly, for some reason, it's not so beautiful. No, you say, this is ugly. No, I didn't, you know, I'm not. And, and I know, like, when I was growing up, you don't see this so much anymore, but an older generation of Jews that I knew used to do something like this. Um, and this is a long history of, uh, you know, um, the Jews um, inciting or inspiring, I should say, not inciting, but inspiring for some bizarre set of, uh, bigoted, insane, uh, culturally uh, stained reasons for uh, 1,500 years, the, um, the jealousy and the envy and the hatred of uh, great masses of ignorant people, right? And I remember <clears throat> some of the uh, older Jews, people of my grandmother's generation, basically, uh, and that's going back a ways now. So this is people who were born in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900 who uh, came over to this country. And they had, you know, they, they had suffered so much and so much taken away from them. And whatever a lot of times they had achieved in their lives was, um, was uh, either taken away from them or they uh, experienced hatred or even violence because they had something at all, even if it was a little bit. And they developed a habit, a tick, which uh, afflicted them to their very souls and they passed down to people. Uh, people like me, not everybody in my generation. Um, but if somebody said, how are you doing? Nah, they could be doing very well <laughs> in every way, healthy, maybe material, uh, materially wise. And they'd say, nah, not so good, not so great. You know, you say that. Why? Because you don't want anybody, in this case, you know, uh, a world full of bigots and lunatics to get jealous, right? Things aren't going so great. So don't so leave me alone. There's nothing here to steal. There's nothing here to rob. And it's the same thing you tell the gods, right? You have a, you know, you have a, even a good thought. You want to make sure that you disparage it, even inside, so the gods don't come around and like zap you, right? Um, and um, so if I, you know, it's this is partly like I say, it's a superstition, like a like a young or child or a primitive uh, person might have. Um, it's disparaging. This particular neurosis uh, that you could think something a certain way or you could say something out loud that it's actually going to change things, this is called magical thinking among 
psychologists and psychiatrists. Magical thinking. I love that uh, phrase. If you tell yourself constantly that the worst will happen, and you even say it out loud, right? Oh, this is never going to work. Oh, this is uh, – I'm, I'm going to wind up with the worst news when I take this test. Or um, uh, this will probably kill me. Or that will never work out right. Or I'll never get that job. Or bl- whatever, right? If you tell yourself that the worst is going to happen or you'll never get anything good and you say it out loud even, then if, you're, if, you, if your thoughts are distorted this way, if your personality is twisted this way, then, then you, are, you believe you're magically protected from the worst thing actually happening. I don't know if you can follow that, right? It's, a, it's an ingrained sense that your thoughts have an actual effect on the outcome of events, right? As if by hoping or praying, um, even in a contradictory or a perverse way, that you can alter reality, that you can actually alter reality by your, by your secret thoughts. Um, of course, the greatest magic trick of all is the thought that you could cheat death. And you spend, like, if you spend all your time thinking about death and dying, which I unfortunately have uh, slipped into over the last <clears throat> couple of years, uh, just because I sort of naturally was always that way and I was brought up in a certain bizarre way, even grew up in an odd way you know, with a cemetery behind me. If you, if you spend all your time thinking about death and dying, if you wrap yourself in the apprehension of mortality the way I do, then maybe you can postpone it, right? Put it off altogether. Um, there are people who do that, that they, they, uh, they think about death or they hang around death all the time. And what they're secretly hoping is by doing that, they'll get a jump on death. They'll always be one step ahead of it because they're aware of what's going on. You know? But if they let it go, if they keep thinking about life and living all the time, boom, it'll get you. You have to be, you have to be on guard all the time and then maybe it won't get you. Of course, it's insane. Uh, of course. I mean, I'm wanting to avoid death, I mean, to, to preserve your own life. Uh, the want to do that, the urge to do that, sometimes at any cost, at any cost, this is a universal human desire. Everybody feels this way. I mean, precious few of us, though, ever reach a state of, like, pure Buddhist acceptance of what they call the great wheel of existence. I mean, how many people have you ever met, including yourself, um, that uh, are so accepting of the naturalness of life and death, that death is just another, another form of existence? There's life and there's death and then there's rebirth. I mean, who, who do you know? <laughs> practice as you might try. Maybe there's one person out there who does really understand, does get that or really feel that after a great deal of training, uh, but I don't, and most people don't. And another thing about this magical thinking, and you know this is, uh, and you know this is uh, true if you're prone to negativity, uh, you know this. You think, if you think the worst that can happen in any situation, if you predict failure, then whatever happens will usually be better than you're imagining. And this is a real thing. This is a, like a perverse tick you get into. Uh, you think about the worst thing that could happen. Oh, that's going to happen. And then usually the worst thing doesn't happen and something better than that happens or even something good. And it's just such a great gift, right? Because it's, it's better than the, you know, if you compare it to what you were expecting all the time. You always get a lift out of that. But it's a bad way to go about being, a bad way to live. I mean, personally... Based on my life experience, I would never hope for the best or expect something good to happen. Never. No way. I especially won't do this out loud or tell anybody else. And to me, this is a sure formula for disaster. I, I remember 
the last time I said something positive out loud, it was about four and a half years ago. And I was telling my shrink at the time that I never felt happier in my life. I can't, I can't believe I actually said that. Three days after I said that to her, uh, my aorta exploded and almost killed me and has left me in a kind of a shadow land ever since. I can't believe I actually said that out loud. I should have known better, right? See, because I really believe this. Also, I think, and again, this is based on my own experience in life, and again, maybe this is familiar in some way to people. It's, it's easier, and everybody, you could see this, you know, by, by looking around and looking at life and the way people live their lives and pick up the news, uh, you know, look at the news. It's easier to complain, to complain, and I was talking about complaining before. It was easier to complain than to come up with constructive ways to fix a situation. So much easier. You know, I found this out myself by doing it. So complaining or being constantly critical, to, I think it's, and, and though I do it myself, it's just really laziness is what it is. It's so much easier to tear down or destroy than to build up or create. I mean, building up, creating something is hard work. That used to be the name of my radio show, Hard Work. It's the first radio show I called it that on uh, BAI. I mean, look at the eternal differences to the extent that they're are still differences at all between Democrats and Republicans. The Republicans want to disassemble the government and every decent human program in it. You could see it's the worst example of this is this administration. They want to cut everything to leave everybody and everything unprotected, including the land. And it's so much easier than that. That, 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 That's so much easier to do that than creating and administering programs that support and uplift people. So much easier just to cut everything down. I you know, I mean, that's the way it is. And, um, but to tackle something, to set it out, to see what you need to do and to do it, so much harder. Easier just to wreck everything. And this is what we have is our, in our government now. <clears throat> as far as complaining, I think the tendency to complain in large part is learned behavior. Um, everybody, everybody's born with a different personality or type of personality. I mean, we all know this. Some people are just happier. They're sunnier, they're friendly and more benevolent than other people. I mean, we, you could see that, right, in your own life. You know, like maybe you have a brother and sister uh, that are like that. Or, uh, you know, you're, you have a group of friends. Some of them are just happier people. Some people and other people, on the other hand, are just born crabby. They're crabby people, critical, even melancholy people. That's the way they come out, right? Um, but so much depends also on how you're brought up. I mean... So there's nature and then there's nurture, right? Uh, so, um, I mean, or for that matter, where and when you're born and grow up. I mean, if you, if you entered the world in a place of extreme poverty or perpetual war, and you could see that right now when you're looking at the world, um, and then even the most forgiving and benevolent personality, uh, if you were born that way, could be twisted and defeated by this, the place and the situation you're living in. But in any time and place, I think, even if you are like a naturally difficult person or life appears to be a struggle from the beginning, if you are or were blessed with understanding and accepting parents, those rough edges can be smooth. So it's a combination of both, I think. <clears throat> In my case, my mother uh, always expected the worst to happen. This is the person I grew up with. It's almost as if she needed the worst to happen. That was a way she justified never growing up and getting everyone to take care of her until the day she died. You know, everything was bad all the time. You have to take care of me. 
I can't do anything because, um, you know, uh, everything is miserable and awful and so am I. So you have to do it for me. That was her um, philosophy. That was her religious credo. That's what I picked up from her, right? I mean, this poor woman, I mean, she didn't know any way out of this trap. And she spent her relatively short life dragging everybody around her into the same pit. On the other hand, my father used to say, and I'm sure this was some, th- so my mother complained all the time, right, how, how awful everything was and bad-mouthed everything and everybody. My father, on the other hand, and I think this is some like 30s or 40s saying that he used to say, and maybe you had a um, father or mother that said this or a relative. But you had to go back into that Depression, World War II people, right? If you can't say anything, no, if you can't say something nice, as you say, if you can't say something nice about somebody, then don't say anything at all. Remember that one? Uh, and he didn't. He didn't say anything bad about anybody, usually. And uh, sometimes he didn't speak for a long time. <laughs> he must have had some pretty bad thoughts about, uh, about things and people he didn't want to share. But he wasn't going to say it out loud. He just, people just didn't do that, or especially men didn't do that. Uh, another thing my father said was, this is an interesting one, right? The squeaky axle gets the most grease. And... Um, he was uh, he was telling me this once in reference to these uh, noisy de- the demonstrations of the '60s. This is you know the squeaky axle uh, axle gets the most grease. It's a great old phrase from an engineer, right? And uh, his experience of this was the communists from the 1930s who used to complain all the time and get out and march and demonstrate all the time. And then, uh, then he got to be um, a big capitalist and um, sort of. Um, conservative in his general attitude. And when the 60s demonstrations came along, he was filled with contempt. You know, he thought they were un-American. So and they're all the screaming, you know, and the war now. The squeaky axle, he said, gets the most grease. But what does this mean? I mean, what does it mean? What does that actually mean? Does that mean, I guess, the one who complains the most gets the most attention, right? Grease is a good thing, though, right? I mean, uh, so why not squeak? I mean, then the axle, if you get grease and you're an axle... Um, you feel better and you work better. So uh, I guess as far as he was concerned, the world is made up of uh, the greased and the greasers. And he was uh, a greaser, right? And my mother was the greased, but uh, it didn't work out in the end anyhow. All this seemed contradictory to me. Anyway, when he said it, I always felt that, um, that, that this justified my complaining nature. I mean, if, if the squeaky axle got the most grease, why not squeak your way through life, Right. Um, uh, which I tended to do, being like my mother. I was torn. I mean, I sort of naturally felt like it was a bad idea to complain all the time. It's, I, I knew it was wrong. But I saw her getting everything, I thought. I didn't really have the perspective or the distance or the age to see that what she was doing was destroying her life. But she was getting everything from anybody, uh, from everybody. You know, oh, this is, oh, I'm sick, or oh, I can't do anything, blah, 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 blah. And then everybody would give her everything. And uh, it was way too late for me finally to learn that this is the worst thing a person could do. Anyhow, uh, well, anyhow, getting, you know, this idea of like uh, not complaining. I mean, this is also the strong, silent type. This is a masculine uh, ideal for a long time. Not anymore, I guess, but um, it's uh, certainly not with me. But uh, it was when I was growing up in the 40s and 50s. The strong, silent type, Gary Cooper, that kind of guy, the hero who didn't say much, but he did things, and he did the right thing, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, that's how, it, that's how you're supposed to be. 
But getting attention because I was strong and silent never really seemed the right way to me, unfortunately. Um, never the way to get what I needed. My father was not a big complainer, basically. I mean, he was obviously brought up to shut his mouth if he didn't like something. And, of course, he was an engineer. I mean, his tendency was to try to fix things rather than sit around muttering about how awful something was. I mean, build rather than tear it down. Now, <clears throat> now I recall, why, why did I go off on this? Why? If anybody ever called this program, you know, maybe you could call up and maybe you have an idea, but nobody ever calls these programs. Podcasts, people don't call up, or most podcasts, anyhow. Um, maybe, you know, maybe it was I was talking about complaining. Why did I go off on this? I think it might be that the last couple of times I went up to Maine and came back talking about how wonderful it was up there and how awful Manhattan was and how I should move up there. A couple of listeners uh, told me to stop complaining about things, that if I was serious about how I felt, <clears throat> that I should just go ahead and do it, move up there already, right? And it's always a possibility, always a possibility, but it's complicated, very, very complicated. And I've mentioned all these complications before, have to do with jobs and health insurance and finances and many other things. But as for this recent trip that I took to Maine, um, we took a bus up this time. I mean, starting a couple of years ago, my wife just couldn't take driving all the way up there anymore. And um, she was doing all the driving for like around 15 years because that's what I first had and continue to have a, a terrible case of vertigo all the time, especially if I'm um, looking at something. If I'm watch, sitting and even watching TV, and uh, a lot of things are like this these days. There's these whizzing things where you're on the road and things are going fast and everybody's moving fast and they speed up the camera work. I have to look away because it makes me dizzy. So there's no way I could even sit in the front of a car, right, let alone drive. Very hard to sit in front of a car. And to drive it totally out of question, it would be dangerous. So I haven't driven a car in about 15 years. So she had been doing all the driving going up to Maine when we took these trips. So this time we took a bus up. And, um, <clears throat> of course... How did I approach taking a bus all the way up to Maine? Naturally, I started complaining about it, uh, you know, um, weeks in advance. <laughs> uh, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. I mean, it was gonna, I was complaining. It's going to be too claustrophobic. I'm jammed in there with all those other people, other humans who I hate to associate with, right, in any close way. I mean, what, and what about stopping? What if I needed a break from being on the highway? What, what about the need I have to lie down and rest every afternoon? You know, can't do that on a bus. What about this? What about that? Everything I was complaining about. Me, me, I, I, blah, blah. I need this. I need that. Blah, 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 blah. The usual. But finally, even I could see that I was in um, danger of uh, destroying our vacation before it even got underway if I didn't shut up. So miraculously, I just shut my mouth about it and kept it shut as far as complaining anyhow the entire time, the entire trip which was um, wonderful, right? Anyhow, so <clears throat> the bus. We get to the bus stop. It's early on a Sunday morning. I have to get up very early Sunday morning, which, of course, I had complained about. But I shut up that Sunday morning. I stopped. Uh, we get to the bus stop, which is at 42nd and 1st Avenue, a lovely spot. And uh, we waited for the bus. Um, it's a, it, Actually, they call it a coach. I like that, a coach. You know, you see this... Uh, old, beautiful, wooden thing, you know, with a coat of arms on it and two or four horses, maybe some footmen. <laughs> the coach, the way for the coach to show up. Anyhow, um, and this was actually a regular New York City bus stop with, uh, 
you know, the glass half enclosure and the bench. So I sat down and I waited. And a couple of minutes into waiting, uh, a homeless woman wanders over and sits down right next to me. This woman was uh, white, maybe late 30s. She's dressed for midsummer, though it was about 48 degrees. Remember how cold it was a few weeks ago or even a couple of weeks ago? Immediately, she starts like jabbering away about the weather, the crummy New York City transit service, and the general state of the world, right? She's just going on and on. She's complaining. (laughs) After a little while, a city bus pulls up and uh, let off one passenger and pulled away again. And she sat there for a a minute, and then she says, um, oh, was that the bus? Yeah, it was the bus, as anybody could see. And then she got up and walked away. This is like a very sad beginning to things, right? I mean, it was sad to see her. She obviously had nowhere to go, and she had nobody to be with. And she's clearly going to spend the whole day wandering around Midtown and keeping it. She's, you know, she's going to keep wandering around because what else could she do? I don't know if she had any place to stay or anybody to be with, but it didn't look that way. She was a lost soul. So this is the person who uh, is my first uh, person I encounter on my bus trip. And... Uh, and she walked away, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and my wife is standing there uh, in front of me. She didn't like to sit down for too long because she's going to sit on the bus. And I'm, th- and I'm thinking to myself for the millionth time how lucky I am to have a smart, sympathetic, good-hearted woman who loves me. I mean, how on earth did I ever deserve to have that? But I have that. And how lucky I am. I mean, how, and how lucky any of us are if we have this, if we have this, to have somebody who loves them, Right? I mean, what a, what a blessing that is and how often rare it is, right? Finally, the bus to Maine shows up and we load our suitcases in and we get on board. And it was a good experience. I mean, comfortable seats, clean bathroom, even free snacks in the back, you know, it's fine. And the only drawback, uh, and I'm not complaining, mind you, was the movie. Every four rows of seats was a miniature movie screen coming down from the top of the bus playing some idiotic piece of Hollywood crap. And there's no way to avoid it, right? You, you didn't have to plug in the headphones that were in, you know, like in front of you at each seat. But you can't avoid looking at the screen. Your eye just naturally goes there with all these colors and people jumping around. And, and it's, that's a shame. They shouldn't have that. I mean, it's a shame because Part of the charm and even the beauty of the bus trip is that you can relax. You can get away from the usual overwhelming, insane carnival of sights and sounds that the city smacks you with every minute. That's part of the reason to go away, right? And, you know, you look out the window. You sit on a bus, right? You look out the window, or if you've been on a train going cross-country or upstate somewhere, you look out the window and you watch the scene and the scenery, conducive as it occasionally is, to calming your mind. It calms your mind. It lines up your jumbled thoughts, and they fall away after a while. The moving bus, you know, um, if the scene isn't too ugly or, you know, uh, uh, like American material junk, which you see a lot of out the window. But uh, there was nothing to be done about it. I mean, I noticed actually that a few people were plugged in and listening to movies as well as watching them. So uh, what are you going to do? I mean, those are the people who weren't plugged into their phones. Everybody, of course, was either staring at their phone or uh, looking at the movie. And there's, you know, looking out the window, I guess, is for um, old people. (laughs) Old people. This is an old habit, looking out the window of a bus or train. And so when we started, we started, we pulled out of the city. And, you know, we're still leaving the city and we're right at the edge of the city. And what do you see when you look at the one? You see America, right? 
the whole way up, I'm going to see America. Not uh, sitting in my apartment, I'm not going to, but th- that's the bus ride. But what do I see? I mean, I see poor, over-mechanized, unnatural, junk-laden America. At least that's what you see, you know, when you're leaving the city. You see the giant buildings, uh, and the machines, a lot of them broken down and rusty, and the general sort of panorama of consumption and waste is what you see. Consumption and waste, just like a, when you're eating or a human body. And finally, you pull out on the highway, and you get away from the cities and large towns, and you see woods, you see water, you see the sky. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I'm on the highway, and... Uh, somewhere in Massachusetts, and there's plenty to think about. So many things crowding my brain as usual. Uh, but this is, bus is rolling along smoothly, and I'm looking at the window, and I'm relaxing, actually. And if I get bored, I have my audio book, 56 Hours of the Count of Monte Cristo, read by a terrific British uh, narrator. The best audio book readers are British, especially actors, because they can do all sorts of voices and accents. So if you ever want to know about audio books, Send me an email, and I'll tell you all about it. <clears throat> I'm an expert on it. But six hours later, this smooth trip, we're in Maine. Uh, you know, there's a lot of small towns we're passing. One big city, Portland, Maine. But mostly what we're looking at is um, lakes, woods, and the sky. You see the sky. You live in Manhattan. You see buildings, and you see a little postage stamp, you know, size piece of sky. But um, up there, you see this vast sky. And another hour and a half after Portland, we're at our destination, which is Rockland, Maine, about halfway up the state on the coast. And I should say that this is not really a vacation, uh, though just getting out of the city and doing something different is a vacation in itself, of course. But what we're up there to do, what we're up there to do is to visit my wife's mother, who is over 90 and getting to be very frail. And she's a woman also, this woman, speaking of complaining, this is a woman who doesn't complain. Uh, at least not about her own lot in life. She has complaints about other things and other people, but not about herself. And she has a lot to complain about at this point, which I won't go into, but it's been a hard, you know, hard life for her in the last several years. And um, she's, a, she's an artist. Um, she's a painter, and she's a pretty good one, too. She has her faults, but all in all, she impresses me. I'm always impressed by her because she's, she never stops... Even in her advanced age and poor health, she never stops creating. She's always got something new, some new art project that she's doing. And it's very impressive. Uh, And my wife, you know, doesn't get to see her that often because we live all the way down in the city here. And the plan to go up there is to spend as much time with her as possible. But we do have, you know, extra time to take walks around town, around Rockland, which is a really nice place. We visit... uh, the Farnsworth Art Museum, this famous art museum, and we, uh, we eat out at various restaurants, which is a pleasure. And basically, we just spend time with each other, which we don't get to do enough. Um, basically, my wife has a nine-to-five, five-day-a-week job and uh, often comes home too late, and we just don't spend enough time together. And um, I have no idea, really, speaking of visiting somebody who's old and frail, I have no, much, uh, no idea how much time is left so any uninterrupted time with my wife is really precious. So the, anyhow, so each day up there is structured around visits with my wife's mother, and this develops into a kind of a routine. Also, my wife's um, family lives up there, or most of her family. Her brother and sister live up in Maine, not too far from where we're staying. So we visit them too. Um, and my sister-in-law, uh, who is also uh, something of an artist herself, and by the way, the manager of a local non-commercial radio station. 
uh, and she has a couple of state. She has a couple of shows on there too, and she's very good on the radio. And she's married to a man who's a sculptor, and they live in this uh, rural area. Where, you know, there's a big cleared couple of acres, and then they uh, they own a couple of acres of woods too. And uh, there's a big garden, you know, which all kinds of fruits, fruit and vegetables. Um, and there's a working chicken coop that she has, gets eggs from. I'm just standing at the window of her kitchen. There was uh, wild turkey and deer and a couple of domesticated dogs in the house, one of them about as big as um, a horse, <laughs> a giant dog. I don't know what kind it's part wolfhound and part uh, elephant, but, um, you know, very nice dogs. But uh, they used to be in the woods, right? You let them out the door. And they go zipping someplace instantly and try to, like, kill any small animal or large animal they come across. That's what they're there for, to protect the house. And uh, her husband's, um, um, you know, sculpture is out there, some of it large, sort of very muscular, really good pieces. And they're sort of set out there on the lawn and near the woods. And um, about 15 feet from, uh, from uh, the large kitchen picture window. It's a very old, old apple tree, many, many, many decades old. And they hung a lot of um, uh, several large bird feeders from the, uh, from the branches of this tree. <clears throat> and the trees <clears throat> are absolutely filled with, with birds, beautiful doves and really gorgeous little um, goldfinches, little precious birds that look like jewels, but they're, they're alive, right, goldfinches. And... Um, <clears throat> I'm standing at this window, and I'm looking at the trees, the deer, the birds, and above me, this huge blue sky, drinking it all in, and I'm filling myself up. I'm like, I was aware of like filling myself up, you know, like storing all this, like a battery, so that when I'm back in the crazy, sick city, um, that, that I'll still have something, I'll retain some of this. So I'm up there, and the days go by, and they go by too fast. It always happens, right? Uh, we take little drives in the country, quiet walks, see old houses. I'm taking photographs all over the place. <clears throat> the weather was um, cool, and it was a little rainy because it's a little before this season. Uh, but in the summer, it's very, um, very beautiful up there. We're going back up again in July. What you don't see uh, up there is a lot of people, obviously. It's quiet. It's calm. And you don't see hordes of people hypnotized by their devices or babbling you know, into screaming into their uh, into their uh, uh, to their electronic correspondence with their uh, you know cordless uh, cell phones and their um, and their Bluetooths, <laughs> Bluetooth. Uh, the people up there, maybe because there are just so many fewer of them jamming up the streets, are generally pretty considerate and polite, right? They're not screaming or yelling, or there's not a lot of needless talking going on. There's not a lot of overflowing trash baskets everywhere. A lot of despair in your face. It's just not there. I mean, it's not that there isn't despair up there. There is, but it's not in your face all the time. It's peaceful. It's peaceful. <clears throat> so we visited the uh, the museum, you know, the art galleries and the museums. Those were, were open. And But one odd thing, I mean, one odd thing happened up there, uh, although it's kind of a routine and we spent our time, you know, visiting uh, my wife's mother. But one odd thing happened. Something that was sort of disconcerting and sort of sadly reminiscent of New York City. The first morning at our hotel, and it was a, a small sort of bright, recently refurbished hotel, a really nice place. Uh, my wife and I are sitting down in the breakfast area eating our complimentary, uh, 
you know, fruit, yogurt, oatmeal, eggs, whatever. And sunshine is pouring in the window. And uh, the wide, really big blue bay, uh, Rockland Harbor, and the bay beyond it is there, and the blue sky. And it's just a beautiful scene, right? And a couple of other people uh, at a table also eating breakfast. And there's this feeling of calm and normalcy, at least temporarily normal. And uh, the only jarring note is the inevitable TV tuned uh, to Morning Joe, of all things, which is the last fucking thing I want to see or hear on my trip. But I fixed this. I just got up and turned it off. I got a look from one of the people, but that was it. So we're sitting there eating, and some guy walks out. I wasn't sure where he walked out from. He just kind of appeared. He materialized like he had been down or up from someplace. He's a black guy in his mid-50s, bald, just about medium height and um, somewhat like round, right? a little rotund, with a couple of days' white stubble on his face. He's, this guy's wearing a black leather jacket, a black shirt, um, black pants, and black dress shoes. And he was talking to the desk clerk just outside where the breakfast room is. <clears throat> then he comes into the breakfast area, and he starts talking to everybody. He's talking to everybody, very friendly, chattering away. In fact, and this is something, of course, you become inured to in New York. He was too friendly. He was just too friendly. Something was wrong. You know, he immediately sets off alarm bells, um, except that the guy was obviously benign, and he's full of goodwill. He just was apparently sort of confused about where he was and where he was headed. And he was walking around in circles. Uh, apparently, he was looking for the exit, which was about 10 feet away from the front desk, but he couldn't see it. He walked into the kitchen, practically walked into a wall. He was, uh, then the desk clerk was very helpful. She helped him find the exit, and he gave a kind of a cheery goodbye, and out he goes, right? But it was a funny feeling, you know, kind of a New York-y feeling. And <clears throat> something happened uh, that made it even stranger, that later that day, um, we went out to a kind of a fancy restaurant on the pier right on Rockland Harbor, and we settled in there, and I'm looking at the menu, and then I have a strange sensation. I look up, and across the room, sitting by himself at a small table, is the same guy. This time he's got on a dark brown sports coat, a white shirt, and a tie, looking very um, very reputable, right? And the restaurant is filled. This whole restaurant is filled. Most tables have four or five or more people. And uh, generally, they're talking out loud. They're drinking too much and making noise, eating. Everybody's uh, laughing and, you know, shouting. <laughs> kind of place I usually avoid. But, uh, you know, it's vacation. But this guy, he's the only one in the whole place is sitting by himself. And all through dinner, I couldn't help uh, looking at him. Finally, he finishes what he's eating, and he gets out a thick-looking wallet and proceeds to take out bills and several credit cards at once and spills them all on onto the table and some onto the floor. So the waitress comes over, and she helps him get, like, straightened out, and he pays his bill. Then he gets up, and he's cheerful the whole time, right? But uh, he still has even more of that thick aura of confusion he had earlier when I saw him. And he seemed to be asking her where the exit was, the exit. He wants to know where the exit is, right? So she points uh, at a door, and he thanks her. Then he gets up and walks out the wrong door, right onto the pier, right onto the pier, right? I mean, he could have walked right into the water. But he came back, immediately comes back, wandering back in. And eventually the waitress um, tells him that she was calling a cab for him. And he sits back down at the table and waited for the cab, just sat there for a long time by himself waiting. And eventually the cab came and the waitress guided him to the right door. 
in seeing this, <clears throat> this guy here, I was struck by a tremendous sense of isolation and loneliness. I mean, here, this guy, he's a black guy in a completely white world. There's hardly anybody black up in this place. This is a white place, Maine, and it's a white world. And here's the only black guy that I see up there. And he didn't even seem to know, like, where he was or where he was going. So he's lost and he's lost. You know what I mean? He's lost in America, in this part of America, because he's black in a white place and um, almost invisible. And then he's lost because there's something wrong with him, too. He's lost. He doesn't know. He doesn't even know where he came from. And I keep thinking, where's this guy? Where did he come from? Who's he staying with? If he's, is he staying with anybody? I mean, where is he going? We didn't see him again the whole time we were there. But this, like, overwhelming dissociation and dislocation, his, you know, his loneliness and his dissociation stayed with me. And um, I kept thinking, maybe this guy is a spirit in human form, like a, a form that is shaped by the shadows of, uh, of everything that's wrong and has been wrong with this country. He's a spirit basically shaped from the dust and the loneliness and the guilt of America. That's what he is. And he was walking around there, and um, he was there for anybody who needed to see him or could see him. Anyhow. Um, and that's really the only other odd thing that happened. Otherwise, it was a sort of a standard vacation. Vacation, And we visited my wife's mother and her assisted living place, uh, which is a very clean, neat, very well-kept-up place with very nice people working there. But it's sad, of course, because everybody there is very old and very sick, and it's the stop before the end. And I was walking up and down the hallways there, and there are all gray carpets. <clears throat> Everything is completely quiet. People, uh, you know, there's doors every several feet for each of the apartments that people live in. Some people live by themselves, some people couples. And it's gray walls, gray carpets, and long hallways. And... I was walking up and down the halls to get some exercise sometimes, and you never see hardly anybody there. And there's this feeling of imminent demise hovering over this place. And I didn't, I just didn't feel like taking that final walk yet, right? So uh, it, was, it was sad. Anyhow, the vacation's over. We get the bus back, <clears throat> and uh, goodbye to the trees and the water and the sky. And we get back, and then, you know, bang, we're in New York City. I mean, into Queens, then over the bridge back, and then into the tunnel, and this and that, and tra traffic, choke, claustrophobic, filthy, ugly city, right? And um, sky is overcast. It was raining. We get off at 42nd and 1st, and we have to take a cab through all this traffic to the Upper West Side. And I feel like I dropped into the Grand Canyon of uh, misery, right? So <clears throat> here I am back in New York. And now, okay, so Maine, I'm not complaining. Maine is not the Garden of Eden. I mean, they have opioid ec epidemics up there. Uh, young people are leaving the state. They have no tax base anymore. I mean, they have problems just like everybody else. And, of course, wherever I go, I'm going to be uh, negative. I'm going to be negative, and I'm, I'm going to bring it wherever I go. But it's the small things. It's the small things. It's the quiet. It's the green it's the harbor, it's the bay, it's the sky, and it's the, it's, it's the small things that, that for somebody like me or at my age or whatever make life worthwhile. And so we may work out, we may move up there, I don't know. Meanwhile, my apartment that I live in on the west side is my home. And of course, as we all know, home is where the heart is. And wherever my wife is, I'm home.
Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where you want to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed to turn, turn. Turning, turning.